Hallelujah, hallelujah, amen. I want to take this opportunity to welcome each of you to High Point Church. We are delighted that you have chosen to come and worship with us for a little while here this morning. Samaritan's Purse and Operation Christmas Child is a very worthwhile cause. I strongly urge you and encourage you to get involved with this mission. And let's bless these children again this year as we distribute the shoe boxes and send them to faraway places around the world where those who are less fortunate than we and who need to hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I encourage you to get involved with that mission. It's very worthwhile. Uh, yes. Sure. I meant to say something earlier. Um, last Sunday, I got an email from Mugabe, um, our friend over in Kinshasa in the Congo. Rainy season has started, and he sent me an email last Sunday. Said that they were able to have service last Sunday, even though it rained, even though the water got up to where it normally would get, and it was running about 40 kilometers an hour. They still had church. People still showed up, and it's because of you guys. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's awesome news. That's great. That is great. I invite your attention this morning to Matthew chapter 7. I would like to read verses 15 through 20 in your hearing. Identifying the real from the imitation. We live in a world that's full of imitation. Go down the aisle of any of your supermarkets and you will find imitation sugar, salt substitute, imitation this, imitation that. Try as hard as they may to replicate the real thing. Just can't be done. Now, I use a particular sweetener substitute and anything I want to sweeten, but it does not take the place of the real deal. I have learned to live with it. <clears throat> but we need to learn to identify the real. We have the benefit when we go to the supermarket because of the federal laws mandated by packaging that all manufacturers must label their products. If it's real, it must have that little insignia on there with real written in the middle of it. If it doesn't have that, chances are it's probably not real. <clears throat> Amen? Unfortunately, for you and I within the Christian world and within the world of religiosity, we don't have that we don't have that privilege of looking at folks and seeing whether or not the real tag is on their label or not. And boy, does the world, religious world, abound with imitation. Amen. So reading this morning from Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, and, and I feel this is such an important time to share this message with you as we are seeing so many prophetic events unfold in our society and our world today, we must be cautious. 
We must be cautious. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15. Imagine Jesus was talking about this in his day. He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. He's given us a way to know them. He said, You will know them by their fruits. He said, do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Well, absolutely not. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Most gracious, loving Savior, I thank you this morning once again for this opportunity and privilege that we've been granted to come together here and to worship you and to exalt your name. Lord, I pray that you will help me today as we come to this portion of the service, the ministry of your word through preaching, that you will anoint this vessel, that you'll anoint these lips and this mind today that we might speak this most important subject and topic today under the authority and direction of the Holy Spirit, and that we might be your instrument and mouthpiece and become transparent before you, that the words that are uttered here today will be directly from the throne room of heaven, and we'll give you the praise and thanks for it. It's in Jesus' name that we do ask it. And everyone said amen. Amen. And you may be seated. As a caveat to this thought this morning, Brother Melton happened to mention to me just prior to worship service beginning and asked me about a particular ministry on television that if I had run across them and had heard anything from them, and I haven't, I've never even heard of the name, but he was telling me that this individual is trying to, is, is preaching and teaching that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter preach two different messages. And uh, this does not, uh, the scripture does not hold that to be true. Peter and Paul both, both preach the same message of grace, salvation through Jesus Christ. But imitations abound everywhere. Just take a trip down the aisle of your favorite supermarket and you'll find them. In fact, they abound to the extent that product manufacturers are now labeling their products with with the real symbol, if you will, identifying them as the real deal. And uh, it's not almost tastes like real butter, or, but, you know, you, you find the real, the real sign there. As it was in Jesus' day, there are many false prophets who pretend to be Christian guides, but whose real purpose is selfish and destructive. Amen. We must test those claiming to prophesy, and we must test them by the fruit they bear. Amen. That is by their lifestyle, by their character, by their teaching, and by their influence. Amen. You see, by false prophets, we are to understand teachers of erroneous doctrines. Everybody okay with that? 
we understand them to be teachers of erroneous doctrines, who come professing a commission from Christ or a commission from God, but whose aim is not, is not to bring the true word of God to people, but rather to rob them of their earthly goods. Amen. Fruits in the scripture and Jewish phraseology are taken for works of any kind. A man's work, says one, are the tongue of his heart and tell honestly whether he is inwardly corrupt or whether he is inwardly pure. Amen. And by these works you may distinguish these ravenous wolves from those who are true shepherds. The judgment formed of a man by his general conduct is a safe one. Amen? It's safe. You're right to do that. If the judgment be not favorable to the person, then that is the individual's fault, not yours. As you have your opinion of him, how? From his works, that is, from the confession of his own heart. Now, chances are, most of us will never know what it means to be persecuted. At least you're hoping so, right? The worst kind of persecution that we, have, we endure or have had to endure is perhaps a little mockery at school. I remember when I was growing up, I used to get called a holy roller. And other kids at school just crush me. Perhaps a little sarcasm at the office being accused of being a little fanatical or a little trouble in the neighborhood, but yet often the fact of the matter is these things just paralyze people. A little bit of persecution, a little bit of name calling just throws them into a complete dizzy. How revealing. Now please understand. I, I want you to understand this care. I, I, I do I am not suggesting this, but how revealing it would be if such persecution as the early church endured suddenly came upon us. That's where the rubber, as they say, meets the road. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that or I'm not wishing for that by any stretch of the imagination. Because, friend, we just don't know persecution. You see, that's when people would move from the realm of theory into reality. And that moment our faith would either stand or fall because persecution always separates the pure from the phony. The authentic from the artificial, it always does. And it always will. The fact of the matter is, the catalyst that pushed Christianity and the message of Jesus Christ beyond Jerusalem's borders was none other than persecution. Amen. Follow me on this now. And it was through this suffering God separated the pure from the imitation. We must learn to identify the true from the imitation.
The fact of the matter is that martyrdom in the early church ignited persecution. It just throwed, as they say, gasoline on the fire. Stephen's stoning unleashed a torrent of violence against these Jewish believers like nothing they had ever known before. At the helm of that violence was a man we know as Saul. And as Dr. Luke in his account through the book of Acts gives us a brief glimpse of him, the word of the Lord says, And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now Saul, it goes on to say, was consenting to his death at that time. A great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Chapter, or, or, chapter 8 and verse 3 of Acts says that, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. We wouldn't take too kindly to that, would we? In fact, somebody come to my house to drag me off, they'd probably get a little bit of a surprise. They might end up winning, but they would, they would know they got their hands full when they got there. But here, can you imagine for a moment these folks as they were going about their daily lives, living for the Lord and enjoying the gospel of Jesus Christ, and here they come and start dragging them off and packing them off to jail because of who they were and what they believed. Now Saul, who later became Paul, determined to destroy the church and that, that at that particular time was known as the way. And he did, tended to do that through the process of persecution. As you recall, after his conversion, Paul recalled the extent of his ravaging by saying this. He said, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women. In every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed on you. This is Paul's own confession of how he approached those who professed to be of the way. In Gestapo fashion, this guy by the name of Saul, imprisoned, tortured, and murdered. Amazingly enough, Saul, who soon became the Apostle Paul, the champion of the gospel and author of much of the New Testament, what a transformation that came upon his life through his conversion and his acceptance of Jesus Christ. However, for now the believers groaned under his crushing assault, wondering whether Stephen's end would be their fate as well. Here's the thing. This could have gone two directions. Persecution could have smothered the flame of evangelism for Jesus Christ, but instead it was like pouring gasoline on a burning match. You couldn't stop it. You couldn't slow it down. You couldn't keep it from going forward. I don't care what they've done. The more they persecuted, the greater the church grew. The harder the adversary went after the church through persecution the more that found their way to saving grace of Jesus Christ. And that exploded in the, even into a greater evangelism. Now again, I'm not suggesting by any means that I want persecution 
to come upon the church. No, 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 I'm not suggesting that at all. But the fact of the matter is, you cannot stop the move of God. Now, here's the unthinkable truth. If you don't want to think this, that's fine. But here's the unthinkable truth. Persecution prompts true evangelism. Take a deep breath. Don't, don't hyperventilate. You see, up to this point in church history, the gospel had centered in and remained exclusive to the folks around Jerusalem. And they were experiencing revival and God was blessing and things were going and folks were being baptized and filled with the Spirit and so forth and so on. But Jesus had a much broader plan and a much broader view of how he wanted evangelism to work and the salvation message to get out. And as you may recall, just prior to his departure, when he had the disciples all gathered around there and he was giving them some last-minute destruction just prior to his ascension up into heaven, he told them, he said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. Okay, that's done. Now it's time to move on. And in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Amen. Now the first place or phase of this operation was being accomplished there in Jerusalem. And as Luke records in Acts chapter 6, the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. But God has a heart for the world, and now it was time to expand that mission from there in Jerusalem beyond its borders and get the message out. Now, like most of us folks that like where we live, that like our homes, that like the community we live, we live in, these folks did too. Something had to get them out of their own sphere of influence and their own circle. And along came persecution. Amen. Persecution, therefore, became the splash in the pond, if you will. Have you ever thrown a rock in a pond and you just watch the ripples go? They go and they go. Well, this persecution was the splash in the pond to send the gospel rippling outward from Jerusalem and that immediate area. You see, experienced by Christians, suffering sent many of the first century church into regions that they had never thought they would ever go. Jewish folks going to see the Samaritans? Oh, I don't think so. They had no dealings with them. And the Jewish believers perhaps maybe even balked initially at the idea of taking the gospel to Samaria in light of the fact that John explains Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. However, Luke tells us that those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Amen. They went about preaching the word. You see, their preaching was effective, as evidenced by Philip's story in verses 5 through 8. Now, you may recall, Philip, along with Stephen, were two of the seven deacons chosen to distribute food to the needy. Remember that early on in the first century church? Philip and Stephen were two of the first deacons. Now, since that time, Philip's ministry had grown beyond Jerusalem. He had become a rather... Uh, a well-known evangelist. And through Philip's ministry, we can isolate perhaps three characteristics that we will call true evangelism. 
We need evangelism in our world. We need evangelism in our society. But it needs to be true evangelism. Amen. It must be true evangelism. First of all, true evangelism emphasizes the centrality of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ must be central to everything that we do. Anybody who claims to be a messenger of Almighty God better have Jesus Christ as a central point and the, the, the most important point of anything and everything they do and preach. You see, Philip went into the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. His ministry shone with integrity because the focus was Jesus Christ. Amen. Not a person, not a program, not an idea, not a methodology, but it was Jesus Christ, and this method still works today. I submit to you that there's a world out here that's lost that are looking for the genuine article and the real deal. They're looking at the labels. They're looking at the fruit. They're wanting to see what's being produced by the lives of those who claim to be followers and miracle workers of Jesus Christ. Amen. Philip's ministry also had a dynamic of liberating power. We must have that dynamic of liberating power through the message of Jesus Christ. As Brother David talked about this morning, that's what Jesus was all about. Liberating and healing and setting free those who were bound by sickness, who were bound by demons, who were bound by whatever, to liberate them and set them free through the power of Jesus' name. Multitudes. Everybody say that word, multitudes. Luke reports believe Philip's message on the basis that hearing and seeing, verses 6 through 7 of Acts chapter 8, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did, for unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Now through these miracles, God confirmed as his man and Philip's message and his word, he confirmed it through these miracles. That Philip was the man, that Philip was his chosen one, and Philip's message was his word. You see, the ministry was pure because it first of all exhibited an unexplainable power that was changing lives. Not merely drawing crowds. There's a lot of ministries today that have the ability to draw crowds just by name recognition alone. Go like this. Amen. There's a lot of them out there that have the ability to draw crowds. You'll see it advertised. So-and-so will be in a city near you. Mark your calendars and plan to attend. And by name recognition alone, they will no doubt draw crowds. Amen? But how about the unexplainable power that's changing lives? Philip's evangelism include the presence of contagious joy. Follow this now. According to the account that I read in the book of Acts, there was much rejoicing in that city. They were having fun. 
If Jesus Christ can't make you happy, you just can't get happy. And they were, and joy said, filled the streets because the townspeople were experiencing the rapture of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? We see where Jesus is, there is joy. Where Jesus is, there is joy. Amen? However, the sad truth is, Jesus Christ is not in all ministries. Unfortunately, some are phony. One such false ministry arose back in the days of Philip's evangelizing. Can you believe it? Back as soon as then... There was a phony ministry arose in Samaria alongside Philip's and was centered around a guy by the name of Simon. Now this Simon guy, he was quite a character. In fact, you see, true evangelism exposes false faith. A rhinestone may sparkle. It may glitter in the light. But when compared to a diamond... Its flaws are exposed. In the same way, Philip's true evangelism revealed the glaring defects in Simon's ministry. If you look carefully at it, you can see just a few of them that jump out. And some of those characteristics of the phony are a sign of a phony ministry is found there in verse 9. And here's what it says. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. There's a clue. Philip proclaimed Jesus Christ. Simon proclaimed himself. I, I'm, I'm going to try to behave. I really am. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to try to behave. Simon proclaimed who he was, what abilities he had, what he possessed, and how he could do this, and he could do that, and he could... Philip, on the other hand, preached Jesus Christ and the power that comes through the glory and majesty of that name. Amen. The principal characteristic of a phony faith is that it exalts the person rather than Jesus Christ. The second characteristic of Simon's act was that he was drawing a following based on fleshly attractions and impressions, if you will. If I can say it like, well, I'm going to say it like this and we'll just see how it falls. He was just simply running a circus. Let's take a look at what people called him here in verse 10. said, To whom they all gave heed, from least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. Well, he had him fooled. Now, I can almost hear and see the announcements now as they come across the crawlers on the bottom of their TVs back in those days. Apostle Simon the Magnificent. 
and His astounding acts of God coming to a city near you. In contrast to Simon's phoniness, the Apostle Paul later exhibited humble honesty in his ministry to the Corinthians when he told them, he said, look, I was with you in weakness. I was with you in fear. I was with you in much trembling. You see, Simon was a manipulator and a deceiver, and his astounding acts were certainly not of God. In fact, the Bible points out, and they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. Amen. The third sign of a phony ministry is exercising counterfeit power. You see, much like Pharaoh's magicians in Moses' day, Simon performed supernatural feats that, with the power of darkness, if you will. Amen. His magic arts... Uh, that they were not mere illusions, more likely they were probably some demonic acts disguised as God's miracles, if you will. Now his show, if you will, earned him a large following, but when Philip came and performed God-empowered miracles, Simon's abilities paled in comparison. You cannot beat the real deal. They can, it almost tastes like butter, tastes like the real deal. I don't care how you doctor it up, you cannot imitate it. I've tried them all, and nothing compares. I was raised on the real deal, and it's just too late to try to convince me that it tastes like real butter, tastes like real butter. I tried, it doesn't. You cannot imitate what's real. Try as hard as you know. It can get close. It can get close. In fact, I'm reminded. Let me share something with you. It's not even in my notes, okay? And I'll hurry. I'm about done. Paul, writing to Timothy, reminded him of this. He said, know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And Paul told Timothy, and from such, turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. This throw that in for good measure. Now, the thing was, Simon was converted. He liked what Philip preached. He liked the message Philip preached. And he come and was baptized and was converted and joined the church. But the problem was Simon's conversion was not genuine. 
Oh, Pastor, now wait a minute. That's awful. That's being awful presumptuous on your part. Oh, I can prove it. It was not genuine. Because, you see, he just wanted an inside look at this new spiritual power without becoming too personally involved. And he was manifesting this fourth characteristic of phony faith, going through the religious motion for the wrong motives, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, having a form of God in us but denying the power thereof. Amen? You still with me? Perhaps at this point even Philip may have thought that Simon's conversion was real. But when Peter and John arrived from Jerusalem, Simon's true nature was exposed. You see, now Peter and John, let me just throw this in for a little footnote here. John and, Peter and John came down to lay hands on the Samaritan believers and pray that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen on them yet, according to the Bible. Now remember, there was a reason for that. And the reason being that Peter was given the keys to the kingdom. Remember Matthew chapter 16? That's why Peter had to go to the house of Cornelius, unlock the door to the Gentile generations. That's why he needed to go and pray for these Samaritans, what the Jewish people called half-breeds, and open the door and unlock it for the gospel message. And they went and prayed for them and laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Well, Simon, he just got all giddy about that. He thought that was the neatest thing. That these guys just come down there, laid hands on these folks, and they received the Holy Spirit. Whoo! That made him jump about this high off the floor. Well, I want some of that. Think of what I could do if I had the ability to go and lay hands on folks and That's what was going on in his mind now. I'm, I'm trying hard. I'm approaching this with restraint. He just come that high off the floor with the idea that he could just get this power. That he could go around, folks, man, I'm telling you what, Philip, you think you're something? You let me have this and I'll show you how to get it done. I'll show you a marketing strategy, buddy, that'll just knock your socks off. It says, and when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. Saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Whoo, if this stuff has this kind of impact. I, hey, I got some money. Look, I've made some money down through the years of this preaching campaign I've been on. All this sorcery I've been doing. I... <clears throat> Now, folks, let me tell you this. There's people out there that are the real deal. There's ministries that are real. There's ministries that are doing what they profess to be doing. But for everyone that there is, there's probably two that's not. Now, Simon's request betrayed his heart. And it illustrated the final characteristic I want to bring to your attention before I close of false faith. And that's preoccupation with the material rather than the spiritual. You've heard it talked about here before, the name it, claim it, grab it, and blab it. 
prosperity doctrine that has been propagated by so many down through the years that we've heard it over and over and over again. Friend, the preoccupation with material rather than the spiritual will get you in trouble every time. You see, interested in profit-making potential, that's what Simon, that's what he's seen when he's seen the apostles come and lay hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. He said, I'll give you money if you will give me the power that I can lay hands on folks and they will receive this Holy Spirit business. Because right now in his mind, he could just... Ting was going on. I mean, it was what I could do with that power. But as you know, you can't purchase God. You can't do it. In fact, Peter pointed out quickly to Brother Simon. Perceiving his hypocrisy, Peter immediately called, called him to task. In fact, Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. He said, Oh, one other thing. You have neither part nor position in the, or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight. But wait a minute. He was just converted. Peter said, Your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven. Keep that phrase in mind for just a moment. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Identifying the true from the imitation. The real from the imitation. Let me say this as I close. Simon's response may have seemed humble on the surface. Remember that phrase I asked you to remember? Peter said, pray therefore that perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. But I perceive when I look at Simon's response just a tone of sarcasm. Listen to what Simon says. Now, rather than falling on his face before God and pleading forgiveness for thinking such wrong thoughts, Simon says to Peter, Would you pray to the Lord for me? That's not too good in and of itself. But then he goes on to say that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. Where's forgiveness in there? He wasn't so much worried about him being forgiven of his wrong thoughts and his wrong attitude and his wrong approach. He wanted to make sure that all these things, Peter said, well, buddy, you in big trouble. Whoo, you just don't know what God's going to put on you. He didn't want any of that stuff. He said, didn't. Just drift with sarcasm. as the musicians make their way this morning, as we see the events of our society unfold, as we watch, as a couple of ladies and I were talking this morning prior to service, 
We are living in a time when prophecy is unfolding right before us. You're living in historical times, not only from a political sense, but from a biblical sense. We're living in historical times. We're living in times when the fulfillment of God's prophecy throughout Scripture is right in front of us. We're seeing it day to day, hour by hour, moment by moment. But as persecution drove the church in the first century to the greatest revival known to the human race, while again I emphasize I'm not suggesting, nor am I praying for persecution, but I am praying for revival. I am seeking that we will see revival in such a way not as we're seeing the so-called plain revivals of our day. Not so that the banners read, come and see what we can do, or our program, or this, but so that those who are out there and lives need to be transformed can come and find a place of refuge, a place of hope, a place of deliverance, a place where they can be trained in school on how to go out and share with what God has given them to someone else and continue the cycle of the liberating power and the grace of Jesus Christ. We must, we must, we must. Persecution as difficult as it was to endure was God's tool to separate the pure from the phony in the early church that will draw the line in the sand every time. He also used it to push the gospel message farther out of, from Jerusalem. And these chaste and tormented Christians took the message of Jesus Christ with them to new areas and new lands and new communities and new regions wherever they went. So if you happen to be going through suffering, whether it's persecution or whether it's just through a time of suffering... Let it do its heart surgery to cut away the phoniness in your life. Let it purify Christ's message of freedom and joy. Then let others see the tested and proven gospel in your life wherever you go. They're looking for the real deal. Does our label of our life tell the others, the world, that we're real? Would you stand?